I always want to say good morning when I greet you, but perhaps the ancient greeting, peace be with you, would be better, because I have no idea, really, what time you are hearing this reflection. So, peace be with you. I am Reverend Dr. Candace Bist, and along with my husband, Bruce Lee, we live and serve in Malmer Township, north of Toronto, at the Primrose and Trinity United Churches. As is the whole country, we have been journeying together through the rocky landscape of the COVID-19 pandemic and these last few weeks, the worldwide protests against racism, economic inequality, and a general dissatisfaction with the status quo. It is said that when something's time has come, nothing can stop the forward movement and the time has come for a momentous shift in the human consciousness. It is, in fact, the next level of evolution, but one that for the first time in human history, we will have to take part in. Momentous changes in the course of human evolution, which have been with us all along, are all very well to read about in history or science books, or in our case, the Bible, but quite another to live through day by day, I feel that we are all suffering in various ways from the strain of this larger shift in the ethos. It comes out in little irritations and in impatience with one another. So here is a collection of thoughts from various spiritual thinkers and dreamers that remind us that though the movements of change that need to take place are enormous, our part in them is small, consistent, and though not always easy, doable to each and every person. To do small things with great love, as Mother Teresa and countless others have suggested, is to work against the single great evil in the world, separation, the idea of separation. Separation from our most noble selves, separation from the divine spirit who knows and loves us, and the resulting separation from one another, which then allows us to perpetrate untold miseries on others because we have deemed them separate from ourselves. And this is the great lie, along with the great evil. For we are separate from nothing, not from God, not from ourselves, not from others, not from the natural world unless we so choose to be with our willfulness. Let us surround ourselves then in our time of reflection with examples of those who chose to work against the great evil of separation, offering communion with others in ordinary, small ways, and in doing so, shifted and lifted the consciousness of us all.
downtown Toronto, in the smoky basements of crowded Parkdale boarding homes, where the nearly homeless hover at the edge of society, communities of authentic hope have been gathering for some years now. The late and much-beloved Reverend Roger Hunter created intentional gatherings there where communion continues to take place in the most unexpected settings. Bread and juice and blessings are dispensed alongside chicken wings and fries, creating homelands where Roger would say, we claim our deepest reality in oneness, in that mystical and timeless entity known as the body of Christ. If you are looking for something spectacular to take place, and your eyes are not yet tutored in the way of faith, you will be disappointed. Nothing appears to happen in this ministry. Friends come and go, some from associated churches or the neighborhood, some residents of the home. They meet together, catch up on news, share insights and thoughts, perhaps sing a hymn, or more likely, if a guitar is produced, a Johnny Cash tune. The liturgy, if there is one, may or may not include a Bible reading. The meetings look ordinary. But as one resident expressed it, these are not meetings, these are divine interventions. You have to be still and concentrated if you want to see anything happen. That's because you must learn to wait, wait on the holy, revere the holy in the other. And this requires the ability to empty oneself in order to behold the other, to regard the other. Reverend Dr. Andrew Fullerton, having spent time in these communities, writes in his precious little book regarding the holy, regard is such a rich little word it lives in the French word, regarder, to look. It means more than to point your eyes this way or that. To regard someone, to have regard or pay regard, is to look in a certain way, with reverence and care, even esteem. In Christian terms, to have regard for someone is to see with eyes tutored by faith, to perceive the magnificence of God's work in a fellow human creature, not in spite of life's degradation, but strangely in and through it. Communities of all kinds that intend on offering places to nourish the soul might well begin with this small movement of attention, this way of looking. This regarding can be learned as a way of beholding not only our fellow humans, but the great other which is unknown. In the emptying out of our own images, our own word pictures, we will create space for a new understanding as yet revealed. Thus, too, we can regard the world, all of nature in this manner, and see new and creative ways to face the difficulties that have come to all but paralyze us. It is something we can offer to those who claim to have no faith, because being regarded and learning to regard others allows the divine to appear in unexpected guises.
Love the Blues Band. Our call to worship, or our gathering call to prayer, comes to us in the new form of an old tradition, or perhaps a medieval tradition in an ancient form. It is the Lord's Prayer, but translated back into the original language in which it would have been spoken by Jesus, which was Aramaic, the language of the ancient region of Syria. We who have grown up in the Christian church revere the Lord's Prayer, having learned it by heart as children. But it is possible to look at it anew and see within the poetic Aramaic language a new opening, a new spaciousness to the divine. And our opening prayer comes to us from 20th century American theologian and social justice activist Thomas Merton. Merton was much concerned with both the civil rights movement and nuclear disarmament, his actions being born of his deeply contemplative life as a Trappist monk. He encouraged all individuals to begin in quiet mindfulness and to focus on love, and only then, when held in love's arms, to venture forth into action. O birther, mother, father of the cosmos, focus your light within us and make it useful. Create your reign of unity now. Your one desire then acts with ours, as in all light, so in all forms. Grant what we need each in bread and insight. Loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' guilt. Don't let surface things delude us, but free us from what holds us back, from you is being born all ruling will, the power and the life to do, the song that beautifies all. From age to age it renews. Truly, power to these statements. May they be the ground from which all my actions grow. Gracious God, Grant me humility in which alone is rest, and deliver me from pride, which is the heaviest of burdens. And possess my whole heart and soul with the simplicity of love for which one thing alone is necessary. Occupy my whole life with the one thought and the one desire of love, that I may love not for the sake of merit, not for the sake of perfection, not for the sake of virtue, not for the sake of sanctity, but for love alone. For there is only one thing that can satisfy love and reward it, and that is love alone. Amen.
Saint Therese of Lisieux is one of the most venerated saints in the Catholic Church, beloved by young people in particular, not just in her own faith tradition, but by those well beyond it. I am a particular fan. From the outside, Therese's short life was uneventful. She entered the Carmelite convent in Normandy when she was 15 and died when she was 24 after a seemingly small, unimportant life. And yet, she was called by Pius V the greatest saint of the modern age. Two years before her early death, at the instruction of her superior, Saint Therese was asked to write about what she called her little way of spiritual childhood, or, as she put it, her elevator to heaven. This slim little autobiography entitled The Story of a Soul has become a spiritual classic and a clear example of how very real sainthood is always recognized when it is authentic, even in the smallest and simplest of gestures. This young girl who lived a rural, mostly enclosed life was formally canonized a mere 28 years after her death. She has much to teach us about the small ways we can shift and change our internal landscape and love, even when we are annoyed or irritated. She has become known as the Little Flower, the affectionate name given to her by those who saw in her small person infinite beauty and worth. I am reading from her autobiography. As you will soon see, my dear mother, being charitable has not always been pleasant for me, and to prove it I am going to tell you a few of my struggles, and they are not the only ones. At meditation I was for a long time always near a sister who never stopped fidgeting with either her rosary or something else. Perhaps I was the only one who heard her, as my ears are very sharp but I cannot tell you how it irritated me. What I wanted to do was to turn and stare at her until she stopped her noise. But deep down I know it was better to endure it patiently for the love of God and secondly so as not to upset her. So I made no fuss, though sometimes I was soaked with sweat under the strain and my prayer was nothing but the prayer of suffering. At last, I tried to find some way of enduring this suffering calmly and even joyfully. So I did my best to enjoy this unpleasant little noise. Instead of trying not to hear it, which was impossible, I strove to listen to it carefully, as if it were a first-class concert, and my meditation, which was not the prayer of quiet, was spent in offering this concert to Jesus. Another time I was in the wash house near a sister who constantly splashed me with dirty water as she washed the handkerchiefs. My first impulse was to draw back and wipe my face so as to show her I would like her to work with less splashing. Then I at once thought how foolish I was to refuse the precious gifts offered me so generously and I was very careful not to show my annoyance. In fact, I made such efforts to want to be showered with dirty water that after half an hour I had genuinely taken a fancy to this novel kind of aspersion, 
and I decided to turn up as often as I could to that lucky spot where so much spiritual wealth was freely handed out. You see, Mother, I am a very little soul who can only offer very little things to God. It often happens that I let slip the chance of making these little sacrifices, which gives such peace. But I am not discouraged. I put up with having a bit less peace, and I try to be more careful next time. Last Sunday evening, the United Church of Canada had a special streaming service on their YouTube site entitled United Against Racism. Over the last few weeks, members of the United Church have participated in demonstrations, written letters, and made statements on their website in support of the worldwide protests around issues of racism. The Black Clergy Network of the United Church of Canada offered this service of worship, prayer, and reflection as a further response to anti-black racism across Canada and in the church. The main speaker was Teresa Samuel, who ministers in Thornbury. Reverend Samuel, who took as her focal point a phrase from Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made, was referring, of course, to the preciousness of each and every person, regardless of skin color. Last week, we read about the Israelites sitting belligerently by the Jordan River, steeped in resentment and seemingly unable at that time to reflect 
on their own behavior. They sat by the water, cursing the Babylonians for their distressing circumstances, which were indeed very disturbing. They were really enjoying the blame game and tried to gather God into their pity party. But two psalms later, we have this other story. And but for a brief little scrappiness and descent into that dead-end trap of complaining and blaming, it is a wonderful psalm filled with life-giving energy and delight at simply being alive. And within it, the psalmist claims, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It was Reverend Samuel's intention to draw her listeners to this phrase so that we could understand that all people, not just some people, are awesomely made. In the original Hebrew, there are several words for fear. One of them is peshad, which means projected or imagined fear. In contemporary terms, that is what we call the response of the reptilian brain, the first reaction to respond when something is unknown, terror, fright, alarm. But there is a secondary word for fear in Hebrew, and that is yirha. That is the word used here. It has the sense of standing in awe and reverence. It implies honor and respect, not angst. So to be fearfully made is to be awesomely made. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, it is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to obtain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. 
They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhorred those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offense in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist writes, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This I know well. If we indeed do know this very well, we also know that all others are fearfully and wonderfully made. And in knowing that, how would we dare to harm another in any manner? For to harm another is to harm ourselves. And if we know ourselves and all others to be fearfully and wonderfully made, we will know that all encounters with others are, as our friend in the boarding home told us, not meetings, but divine interventions. There are two theologies that emerged in the latter part of the 20th century that had at their heart this idea of understanding that all people are communally connected and that separation, our determination to pull away from God and others, was the darkness against which we were to rally. These two theologies were liberation theology, emerging from new thinkers and writers in South America who combined the gospel of the early church that was culturally set apart from common culture and socialist economic concerns for the welfare of the poor and disenfranchised. And feminist theology, which emerged in the 60s as women entered seminaries for the first time and studying the scriptures began to ask questions that had not occurred to their male counterparts before them. Both liberation theology and feminist theology concern themselves with our experiential faith, our lived-out lives, our daily choices in our interactions with others. And both theologies begin with understanding our own individual value and, by extrapolation, the infinite value of others. Both theologies require a reaching out to others in compassionate response as companionship with the divine. Gustav Gutierrez, one of the founders of liberation theology, working with the scriptures from Third Isaiah, writes, Our encounter with the Lord occurs in our encounter with others, especially in the encounter with those whose human features have been disfigured by oppression and alienation. And also this thought, to sin is to refuse to love, to reject communion and fellowship, for in humanity each person is the living temple of God, and we meet God in our encounter with others. Anne Carr, a sister of charity, an early advocate of feminist theology, writes that feminist spirituality frees itself from ideologies in favor of the authentic freedom of the individual and the group, as it intends to be faithful to its own experience. 
and that a Christian feminist spirituality is universal in its vision and relates the struggle of individual women to the massive global problems of our day. And though at first glance you might not think to put St. Therese of Lisieux in the feminist camp, Therese trusted her own experience of God and her own insight. Affirming our own experience is foundational to feminist theology. It seems to me that we are standing at the crossroads of liberation theology, concerning itself with the welfare of others, and feminist theology, working from our own unique experience. And this ties us back to St. Therese of Lisieux's hidden charities and her devotion to incarnating love. Therese, for all her smallness, had great ambition working in seemingly tiny increments to take her elevator directly to God, and in doing so, becoming a saint. Latin American liberation theology and feminist theology both work with small, seemingly inconsequential movements to the ambitious business of reshaping humanity. Liberation theology desires nothing less than the creation of a new humanity, and has at its heart an insistence on a love which is manifested in concrete action. Feminist spirituality may begin within individual hearts and the web of relationships that then ensue, but feminism is a worldwide movement that envisions nothing less than the radical transformation of human history. As we consider that we and all others are fearfully and wonderfully made, here is a combined spirituality that resides in the place where small, concrete acts of love affect a tectonic shift in humanity's collective consciousness. Last Friday, June 19th was Bruce's and my 39th wedding anniversary, and it is also the birth date of Blaise Pascal. I love Blaise Pascal for many reasons, but particularly for a single thought of his that has offered me solace over the years, and which, I think, offers us the concluding piece to our reflection. Pascal wrote, Le cœur a ses raisons que les raisons ne connaît pas. The heart has its own reasons that reason knows not of. Pascal was born in France in 1623. He was an early protege in mathematics and physics. He invented the first mechanical calculator for sale to the public, the syringe, the hydraulic press, and early forms of probability theory and integral calculus. His family was not religious, but he was deeply impressed with the two Christian mystics who cared for his father during a serious illness, and he converted to Christianity. Which is a good reminder to us that our faith is not built around a church building or even the scriptures, but around the nature of our own heart. It is how we are in the world. It is our very being that offers the good news of the gospel for others to gather around. 
Pascal became a mystic himself, which is someone who simply lives as though what Jesus taught is actually true, that we are all beloved, that we are all connected. Having a divine vision, he later called that a night of fire, he scribbled down his poetic thoughts on a piece of paper and then sewed that paper into the lining of his coat so he could keep it with him until his death. And from these notes, his most famous work was published after his death entitled Pensées, or Thoughts. And here are two of his thoughts. If you don't have faith, Pascal wrote, Try acting as though you do. Do the things that a faithful person would do, and over time, you may well find your actions leading your heart and mind in faithful directions. Don't worry too much about what you believe. Focus instead on your actions and how you are living, and your convictions will follow. And in what has become known as Pascal's Wager, he argued that while definitive proof of God's existence exceeds our grasp, this shouldn't surprise us. Whenever we face ultimate, unanswerable questions, we are unavoidably in a position of wagering. Either we bet on the idea that God is real or on the idea that God is a fantasy. If God is real, Pascal reasoned, there is a great deal to be gained by believing and acting as if God is real, and a great deal to be lost if we don't. And if God is a fantasy, there is comparatively little lost, no matter what we do. So it makes more sense, he concluded, to wager that God is real, and by extension, to live our everyday lives accordingly. Living from our own experience, out of the comings and goings of every day, we reach out to one another in our desire to touch the face of God. We work from our heart, acknowledging that we can never know the heart of the other, for this is an intimate matter, but that we hold it to be precious, to be sacred, to be fearfully and wonderfully made as we are. Sit with this meditative piece of music built around Pascal's thought and hear within it what you need for the week, what requires mending, what heart needs repairing. It may be your own. It was written from an experience of loss but with the ever-present hope and faith in the power of love. But after it was written from my own particular experience, it seemed to me it was also the divine voice speaking to us, to humanity, in its desire to be known, to be loved, and to be connected.
its own reasons Beyond the reasoning of the mind You are mine But you're lost to me Through this passage of time But I won't let go Of the promise That in the end love again for love has strength and love has sureness love brings us safely around the bend what is done can't be forgotten what is done we can forgive And we can go right on believing This was the life we were to live Some say it's hopeless To keep on hoping And letting go will set us free But faith is hope Things unknown to us And grant sight of what is yet to be Grant sight of what is yet to be
Both our church councils met this last week and we have voted to keep our church buildings closed until September 13th, with scheduled council meetings in late August, early September to reaffirm this possibility. You will know that the government has allowed churches to reopen, however, the stipulations for reopening, no singing, no hospitality, social distancing, masks being worn, no passing of the peace or collection plate, etc., Combined with the fact that so many of our attendees are in the COVID-19 vulnerable sector, made what we consider to be church gatherings virtually impossible. I know this is a disappointment to many, and we all miss seeing one another in person. I certainly do. But this is an unusual time, not just in our own community, but throughout the world. And we must continue to be patient and loving with one another until the time comes when we can again gather. Each church has formed a small task force to understand the stipulations laid out for reopening. Because Primrose United Church has their delightful outdoor space, their task force will be considering several outdoor gatherings in the garden area over the summer. These will not be church services, but quiet, reflective gatherings to touch base with one another with all precautions in place. Bruce and I will continue to offer new podcasts each Sunday throughout the summer with accompanying materials on our website and twice-weekly email correspondence. I encourage our wonderful care leaders in both churches to continue keeping an eye on everyone. Not only was June 19th the birthday of Blaise Pascal, it was also the day the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed by the United States Senate. Often considered the most significant United States civil rights legislation since Reconstruction, the Act prohibited discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin in employment, voting, and the use of public facilities. The date of June 19th is significant because it also is a celebration called Juneteenth, a combination of June and 19th, a holiday that recognizes when the United States ended its historic practice of slavery in 1865, when Union Army General Gordon Granger arrived in Texas with his forces to proclaim that all slaves in Texas were free. Until then, Texas, being the most remote of the slave states, had not observed Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation Order of 1863, a good reminder that though legislation may change, human behavior can be more reticent to shift its thinking. As we are all now painfully aware, we are a long way off from these ideals, not just south of the border, but in our own country and throughout the world. Our closing prayer is Oscar Peterson's Hymn of Freedom, written in 1964 and adopted as a soundtrack for the civil rights movement. When every heart joins every heart and together yearns for liberty, that's when we'll be free. When every hand joins 
every hand, and together molds our destiny. That's when we'll be free. When everyone joins in our song and together sings in harmony, that's when we'll be free. May every blessing be yours this week. Stay safe, be kind to one another, and never imagine for one moment that change is not possible and that humble love is not the single most powerful force in the universe. joins every heart and together yearns for liberty that's when we'll be free when every hand joins every hand and together
That's when we'll be. That's when.